I said, my name is Luke, and I have the privilege of helping us to, to study through the, uh, the Gospel of Mark, along with some of the other guys that preach from time to time. Um, but we're studying this passage in Mark 10, and we're in this section in the Gospel of Mark, as we just kind of go through it chunk by chunk, where Jesus is um, training his disciples on what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus on the way to the cross. We're going to look a little bit at the end today and, and a lot next week about Jesus' prediction of his, his going to the cross and his being resurrected. And so along the way, Jesus is teaching some stuff, and it, there's a lot of seriousness to it. A couple of weeks ago, uh, we talked, Josh preached about how uh, the, Jesus is, was teaching about the seriousness of sin. Last week, we talked about being serious about marriage and what Jesus has to say there. Today, we're looking at what it is to be serious about following Jesus. What does it look like to really follow him? You know, we're in this season now as a country where the campaigns have begun already. You know, we're a year and a half away. It feels like, holy cow, how's this political thing already kicking off again? Um, there's about as many candidates as people in this room, and it's just kind of crazy, but we're thinking about it. And over the next year and a half, if you're not thinking about it yet, you'll start probably to think through, what would a good candidate look like to be president? So, someone that would be kind of an ideal candidate for president, what would they look like? Well, today, I want to ask you a question about an ideal candidate for a follower of Jesus. What do you think would make up an ideal candidate of a potential follower of Jesus? So think about your work. Who at your work would be, that doesn't currently follow Jesus, who would be an ideal candidate to become a Jesus follower? Who at your school would, you be, would be an ideal candidate to become a Jesus follower? Who in your neighborhood would be an ideal candidate to follow Jesus? Maybe you have someone in your mind. My guess is it's not someone like Tom Schrader. Some of you know uh, Tom. He was here this summer. He preached. He was the founding pastor at Redemption Gilbert, has a ministry that's been in the valley called Priority Living. He's in his 60s. And in 1980, he became a Christian in his 30s. But it came through a pretty unlikely scenario. He was a, a commercial real estate uh, guy and uh, worked in an office where there were a number of Christians there. And every week, these Christians would go to this Bible study. It was taught by a guy named Larry Wright, and they'd go, and they'd hear the Bible study, and then they'd come back, and week after week after week went, and they never invited Tom. And finally, and Tom's life was a mess. I mean, it was just up, upheaval in all sorts of ways. He was very far from God. But at one point, he was curious, and he asked them, he said, do you think I could tag along with you to that Bible study? They said, uh, yeah, I guess. I mean, anyone can come. So sure, why not you? And so he, he came, and it was one of those things where he was sitting there hearing Larry teach, and it was like he was the only person in the room. Have you ever had that moment? You feel like, how does this guy know so much about me? And it was the Holy Spirit zeroing in on Tom's heart, and Tom became a Christian that day. Later, he went and he asked the guys at his office, how, how come you never invited me? They said, well, we didn't ever think that God would ever save someone like you. They said, you're, you're not the ideal candidate. And so what we're going to find in this story today is someone who we might think of as an ideal candidate, right? Maybe as you kind of went through that list, you went, okay, it's got to be someone that's moral. 
It's got to be someone that's pretty good because God seems to care about morality and obedience and goodness. And, and it'd be great if it was someone that had some resources. You know, they were gifted and they were strong and they, you know, ha- had, had maybe some ability to, to do some things after they became a Christian. It'd be great if, if they were young, right, because they'd have a lot of energy and a lot of life left in them and they could really make a big difference. And, you know, it would be great if they were interested in spiritual things, like they were already kind of a little bit hungry for some stuff. That would be the ideal, ideal candidate for a follower of Jesus. Well, here's what we're going to see today, is that Jesus encounters a man just like that. And the guy doesn't end up following Jesus. So if you're here today as someone who goes, I I don't know what the ideal candidate is, but it isn't me. Maybe it is. And if you have kind of not been inviting other people because they don't fit that kind of description in your mind, maybe God wants to do something that you could never envision. So that's what we're going to look at today. Following Jesus is the language I use. The, Jesus lang- the, the language Jesus uses is in this passage is the idea of entering the kingdom. Entering the kingdom. It comes up actually four times in verse 15, verse 23, 24, 25. Jesus talks about entering the kingdom. What does it look like to enter the kingdom? And so that's what we're going to talk about uh, today. And as we look at these stories, there's really three questions that emerge uh, from this text. The first one is this. What kind of person enters the kingdom? What kind of person? Second, what must be surrendered to enter the kingdom? And third, how could I possibly enter the kingdom? What kind of person enters the kingdom? What must be surrendered to enter the kingdom? And how on earth could I possibly be one that enters the kingdom. That's what we're going to look at in this text. Uh, but before we do, join me and let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you use the foolishness of the gospel to reveal your wisdom and your power. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for what he had to say and what he came to do. And God, we invite you now as we open your word that you would, by your spirit, allow us to see Jesus. Would you move in our hearts in a way that only you can? Would we have ears to hear you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, well, first question. What kind of person enters the kingdom? What kind of person enters the kingdom? Uh, if you just kind of think about where we were, and if you, were, if you weren't here last week, no big deal. Jesus had been teaching a big group of people. The Pharisees had come up and asked him some questions, but he's probably still surrounded by a large group of people. And then he's going to kind of move on. And here's what it says in verse 13. It says, And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. They were bringing children. Who were bringing them? I don't know. People in the crowd, it doesn't exactly say. But this word children is important. This word children... It really has the idea of little children, very young children. They were bringing little children. The, the word really has the idea of uh, infants, babies, toddlers, maybe very, very young children. I have a one-year-old, Mary, and so I'm very familiar with this kind of child, right? She just walked, actually, this week for the first time. Yay, Mary, way to go. It was really fun. But, but that's the kind of people, that's the kind of kids that were being brought to Jesus. Little children, babies, infants, toddlers, little guys. They were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. Hey, 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 stop that. Get, get away. 
No, 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 you, you can't bring him to Jesus, right? And now we hear that and go, whoa, that, why would they do that? Well, just think about what we've read about Jesus up to this point. If you've read the Gospel of Mark, if you've been with us, Jesus is constantly in demand by people. Everywhere he goes, huge crowds want to talk to him, want to touch him, want him to heal them, right? Oftentimes, Jesus has to leave a place before everybody's healed and talked to. Imagine being the last person in line when Jesus says, all right, guys, it's time to go. And so, so it makes sense a little bit if you put yourself in the disciples' shoes. They're going, we don't have time for Jesus to hug a bunch of kids, right? This is a very different culture than our day, right? In our day, the politicians, they all want to hug and kiss the babies. And, you know, the way you treat babies is really important. In this day, kids were not looked on very favorably. And so the disciples say, hey, 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 get out, get out of there. How does Jesus feel about that? Verse 14. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. And said to them, let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Jesus was indignant, it says. Jesus was angry. Jesus was upset. There's a righteous anger here that Jesus is feeling. As the disciples say, hey, hey, get these kids out of here. We don't have time for them. That makes Jesus angry. You know, you can tell a lot about a person by what makes them angry. What makes us angry? A lot of times it's things that don't go our way. Right? I, I, I wanted it this way, and, and, and I wanted my sandwich like this, and they left off the pickles. Well, boo who? Right? Or, or we get mad about traffic. I mean, people get furious about that. Why? 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 Does it, does it, it doesn't matter that much. We get, we get upset about all these things. What does Jesus get upset about? Well, here, he gets upset when little vulnerable children are not thought of. Other places, if you read in, in earlier in Mark's gospel, he got very angry when there was a man with a withered hand and the Pharisees brought him forward as kind of a prop and, and, and said, let's see if Jesus heals him on the Sabbath so we can trap him, right? And, and Jesus gets very angry at their callousness toward this weak and helpless man. All four Gospels record Jesus getting very angry when he sees what's going on in the temple. And Jesus actually a number of times goes into the temple and he turns over the table of the money changers. At one point he makes a whip of cords. And he says, you've made my father's house, which was supposed to be a house of prayer, you've turned it into a den of thieves. Why did he say that? Because what was happening was that especially the poor people would come and they would come to make their sacrifices and they would bring their lamb or they would bring their, their birds or they would bring whatever they had and they would bring it and the people in the temple would go, well, this bird is flawed. But good news, I have a pre-approved bird just for you. I'd be happy to sell it to you. And so they, they, they were ripping people off. And Jesus sees this and he gets mad. He gets furious. Right? What makes Jesus angry, if you want to just see the heart of Jesus, what's he like? What makes him angry is not when his own personal comfort is threatened. What makes him angry is when the weak and the vulnerable and the marginalized are ignored. Or even worse, abused. So I think Jesus would be very upset at progressive people who are okay with the slaughter and selling of body parts of babies. I think, I think that would make Jesus mad. And 
I think it would make Jesus mad at conservatives who are cold and heartless and racist toward undocumented people who are vulnerable and weak. I think there's a lot that Jesus would get mad about if he looked at how callous, especially his own people, treat the under-resourced and the poor and the marginalized. That's a sermon for another time, but I think we have to see his heart. Another thing that I think we need to see before we get back to answering this question, what kind of person enters the kingdom, we just have to notice that childlike people, uh, or I'm sorry, that, that Christ loved kids, and therefore Christ-like people love kids. You want to be like Jesus? Love kids. Jesus loved children. Now, I have to especially remind myself, Christ-like people like other people's kids. It's wonderful to like your own kids. That's not very hard. Christ-like people like other people's kids. There's a man that's part of our church who has uh, raised a number of uh, sons that are grown now, and he is a godly man. He loves the Lord. And you talk to him, and it's just like Bible, just is constantly coming out. But not in an obnoxious way, just in a gracious way, like, man, this guy's been with Jesus a lot. And when you meet him, he's going to encourage you, and he's going to hug you, and he might give you a neck rub, and he's going to pray for you. But whenever he sees a baby, you know what he does? He grabs it, and he smiles, and he hugs it, and he boo, 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 and then he holds it up like Simba, and you know, and it's just this, and you watch him, and it's like, that's like Jesus. That's not just his personality. That's Jesus in him. We're, as a church, just as a kind of parenthesis here, we're surrounded and filled with kids. We have 300-plus kids that, that call Redemption Church home every single weekend. That's amazing to me. And so what a huge opportunity we have to show them the love of Jesus, but actually for us to grow in the love of Jesus. So there's information in your program, if you look back in there at some point, all about how you can serve with Redemption Kids. There's opportunities. They're recruiting right now for people that are going to love kids this year. And it's not mostly teaching, and it's not mostly helping. It's loving kids. But here's what's so cool. When you love kids in a place like Redemption Kids, you don't just love kids. You also love parents. Some of you maybe have heard me talk about this. This summer when we were gone on our, on our sabbatical, we went to five or six different churches. And there was one church that as a dad, I felt comfortable leaving my one-year-old in their kids' ministry. Um, the rest, you'd get there and it was like the volunteers weren't quite there yet. Or maybe they were a couple teenage boys and you're going, hopefully there's going to be some women that show up here to take care of my one-year-old daughter. Or, and this is actually common in a lot of churches, what happened uh, at least one time, it may have been more, but I know for sure one time, is uh, Mary needed a diaper change. And at most churches what happens when, when a kid needs a diaper change is they paid you. You, know, you, get, you have a number or something pops up on the screen and they say, hey, you've got to come out of the service, come change your diaper. Well, we've done it at Redemption Kids where, uh, particularly with the nursery nursery, we have, we have women adult women that, that serve in there, and they just change the diapers. And you get your kid back, and there's a little sticker on it that says, they were wet, and they were changed, and you go, yes, I didn't have to do it. <laughs> right? And what happens when, right, the first Sunday we come back, we're, we're dropping Mary off, and the adults are there, and they're eager, and they got big smiles, and they're ready to take care of her. And I tell you, just as a parent, listen, you love my kid, you love me. 
And so as a, as a potential volunteer, as you think about, how am I going to make a difference this year? How am I going to get connected in a relationship this year? One of the biggest things you should consider is serving with Redemption Kids. You'll develop a heart for Jesus, and you'll love kids, and you'll love their parents. But here's what this passage says. Not only will you love kids and love parents, you'll love Jesus. Christ-like people love kids. All right, all that's kind of parenthetical. None of it answers the big question that I asked earlier, which is this. What kind of person enters the kingdom? Well, Jesus talks about this in verse 15. Part of why Jesus is so angry is because children are an incredible model for the kind of person that enters the kingdom. Look at verse 15. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Listen, you know Jesus is serious anytime he says, truly, I say to you. He said, listen, listen up, pay attention, don't miss this. Truly, I say to you, this is a big blanket statement. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Doesn't seem to be exceptions to that. Seems to be to say, The kind of person that enters the kingdom is the kind of person that enters it like a child. Okay, so a childlike person is who can become a part of Jesus' kingdom. Well, what does that mean? What does childlike mean? Now, at first glance, you might think, okay, well, think about children. Children are imaginative, and children are naive, and children are innocent, and children are, most of them, sweet and obedient and pure and, um, and, and kind of, you know, filled with wonder. Maybe that's what Jesus means. But if you think about it further, what you realize is that nowhere does Jesus or any part of the New Testament indicate that the way you enter the kingdom is by your virtue, right? And all those things I just said are virtue, right? Jesus doesn't say, only the innocent can enter my kingdom. Only those filled with wonder can enter my kingdom. Only those who are obedient can enter my kingdom. That's not what he's saying. That clearly can't be what he means. So so what does he mean? Well, in light of the fact that these are little children, it seems like what Jesus is saying it is to be like a child is to be helpless. To be weak. To be empty with nothing to offer. That's what it is to be childlike. James Edwards is a fantastic commentator. I've gotten a lot out of his commentary on Mark, and here's what he says on this. He says, to receive the kingdom of God as a child is to receive it as one who has no credits, no clout, no claims. Little children are paradigmatic disciples, for only empty hands can be filled. Little kids, they're, they're paradigmatic. They're the model. They're exemplary kinds of disciples. Why? Because only empty hands can be filled. So what kind of person can enter the kingdom? A childlike person, a helpless person, an empty-handed person. Nowhere does the scripture indicate that you can come to God and say, look at all that I have, God, use me. It always says, no, 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 no. I, I, I oppose the proud. I give grace to the humble. Come with empty hands kind of person enters the kingdom? Helpless people. That leads us to the next story, which I think Mark gives us right here as a very clear contrast to what he just said about this kind of helplessness. And this raises the next question, what must be surrendered to enter the kingdom? What must be surrendered? 
This next story, verses 17 to 31, is called the, oftentimes the rich young ruler or the rich young man. Maybe you have that heading in your Bible. It says one of those things. Uh, that title actually comes when you look at Matthew's account of this and, and Luke's account of this. Nowhere in this particular passage does it talk about uh, him being a ruler, but, but it's indicated that he had some position of authority. He obviously had great wealth. He was a young man. And he has this interaction with Jesus. This guy would be the ideal candidate to follow him. Look at verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Imagine that. Imagine someone comes to you and says, hey, I know you're a Christian. What must I do to inherit eternal life? You'd go, whoa, this is the biggest moment of my Christian faith. Like, this, isn't, this is crazy, right? This is not like the traps that people are always trying to set on Jesus. This is a genuine, sincere, I'm interested in eternal life. What do I do? How does that happen? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus kind of saying, you don't know that I'm God, so you just think I'm this rabbi. What are you, what are you calling me good for? Maybe you have a little too low of a standard for what counts as good. Verse 19, he starts to list a number of the Ten Commandments. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Right? There's the Ten Commandments. Jesus lists a handful of them here. He says, you know the commandments. But how, how, how are you doing on it? And he said to him, verse 20, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Now, there's a very low chance that the guy thinks he's actually done it perfectly, right? Few people are that crazy to think I'm sinless, right? He probably doesn't think that, but he probably is thinking, you know, all things considered, I've done it, yeah, right? This is just like when you ask someone today, are you a good person? Yeah. Well, how do you know? I've never killed anybody. I'm always like, what a high standard. Like that's, that, that's the standard for goodness, right? You know, I've, you know, I've generally grading on the curve. You know, I've been decent. And there's a very good indication that he has, right? If, if the rich young ruler is an appropriate title, he's probably a religious guy. And so it's probably actually pretty accurate that, that generally speaking, he's been good. Jesus says, what about these commandments? He says, I've kept these from my youth. And it's interesting how Jesus responds. Because what he doesn't do is say, you know what? I have been looking for a guy like you. You know what? You are good, and I can tell you have money, and you're just hungry for this. And you know what? We've been looking for a 13th disciple because we're going to lose one pretty soon, and we could, we could use your help. That's how a lot of people think heaven works. That's how a lot of people think eternal life works is just be a good person. God's grading on the curve. Be better than them. You know, don't, right? That's not how Jesus responds. Instead, what Jesus does is he says, I'm going to ask you a question that's going to get to the heart of the Ten Commandments. In fact, it's going to get to the heart of what it is to follow me. And it's a question that's going to reveal what's in your heart when it comes to the first commandment. Because the first commandment was that you should have no other gods before Yahweh. God should be central. God should be essential. God should be the one to whom you look to and depend on for everything important in your life and everything unimportant in your life. He's king over all. That's what that is. 
And so Jesus is going to ask him a hard question. Here it is, verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, not a question, it's actually a command, you lack one thing, go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Now, this is an interesting statement here. Jesus obviously sees that the guy is wealthy and so he says, what's at the heart of your faith or your possessions? So I want you to give them up. I want you to sell them. But notice the attitude of Jesus before he says this hard saying. Look at verse 21. It says, and Jesus looking at him. Looking at him. Jesus isn't cold here. Jesus isn't detached or distant. Jesus is looking with love in his eyes. Care in his eyes concern in his eyes. It says he, looking at him, loved him. It's very interesting. Mark is not huge on details. So for Mark to include a detail like this, that Jesus looked at him and loved him, tells us that what's in Jesus' heart is something really important as he's about to tell him something really hard to hear. And what he tells him is, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, follow me. Now listen, it's important for you to understand, especially if you're new to Christianity, that one of the requirements of becoming a Christian is not to sell everything you have. This is not a universal command, right? In in Acts 2, you read about Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost, and all these people were cut to the heart, and they said, what should we do? Peter didn't say, sell everything. He said, repent and believe and be baptized. Trust in Christ. Make Christ the center of your life. Trust him. Repent. Turn from all the stuff that you've oriented your life around. Trust him. Make him the center. That's how you become a Christian. There's other places. Zacchaeus was a very rich man who became a follower of Jesus. And he said, I'm going to give away half of my possessions. And Jesus didn't go, let's go, Zacchaeus. Give me the other half. Nicodemus was a wealthy man. Nicodemus never, money never even came up with him and Jesus. So this isn't a universal thing. But what Jesus is doing is he's zeroing in on the one thing that's getting in the way of this guy having no other gods before him. Go, sell everything you have and follow me. Verse 22, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, went away gloomy. You could see his whole disposition, his whole body language, it's all changed. He went away gloomy, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Listen, Jesus isn't anti-money, but he is anti-idolatry. Anything that you put before God is an idol, and that's what Jesus is getting at. What must be surrendered to enter the kingdom? Whatever it is that you're putting ahead of Jesus, that must be surrendered. Here's how Martin Lloyd-Jones describes idolatry. He was a Welsh preacher from a hundred some years ago. He said this, An idol is anything in our lives that occupies the place that should be occupied by God alone. Anything that is central in my life, anything that seems to me essential. For this guy, it was money, it was possessions, it was stuff. But it might be something different for you. 
At the heart of it, Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, you got to get rid of those idols and trust me. He's, anti, he's not anti-money. He's anti-idolatry. John Cronwald's one of our pastors. He wrote a great blog post that will be on the website tomorrow that talks about idolatry and gives you some great kind of diagnostic questions to help you think through what are the things that maybe Jesus would ask me to, to let go of as I follow him. I'd encourage you to check that out. So Jesus isn't anti-money. He's anti-idolatry. But listen, the warning still remains. Because Jesus goes on to say this. Listen to verse 23. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. What? Did you hear what he said? How difficult will it be for those who have wealth, for those who have money, for those who have stuff to enter the kingdom of God? You go, huh? So did the disciples. Verse 24. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. How easy is that, by the way? Not easy, right? Impossible, right? A camel can't get through the eye of a needle. It's impossible. And Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Listen, Jesus isn't anti-money, but the warning is serious. People with a lot of money, he says it three times, people with wealth have a hard time entering the kingdom of God. Now you go, oh good, well I don't have wealth. I'm, I'm good. Not talking to me. Warning, noted but not needed. Really? I mean, we line up all the earners in in the world's population, six or seven billion of us, we're all at the front of that line. And listen, my goal here isn't to make you feel bad about it. It, 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 Praise God that you were born into a country like this. Wonderful. But you got to take this warning seriously. Jesus isn't kidding around. He says it three times. You go, "Ah, I I still am not sure. Listen, here's the greatest test that I know to see if you are wealthy. Have you ever walked into your closet and looked at all your clothes and thought, I have nothing to wear. I hear a lot of female laughs there. <laughs> right? When you have plenty of clothes, right? When, when there's money that falls in your couch and it falls in the cup holder in your car and you don't even care, right? When you, when you get it, you're like, oh, this is so sticky and dirty. I'll just throw it away, right? You're rich. And Jesus says, watch out. It's hard for rich people. It's hard for wealthy people. It's hard for people with a lot of stuff. It's hard for us to enter the kingdom. Why? Well, the key to this whole passage was back in verse 15. Look back at verse 15. What did it say there about entering the kingdom? Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Whoever doesn't receive the kingdom helpless won't come. So so, so do you get it? Do you get why it's hard for rich people to enter the kingdom? Do you get why it's hard for us to enter the kingdom? Because when you have money and possessions and stuff, you don't feel helpless. You feel self-sufficient. You got a problem, it's fine. I can get some more education. I can pay for that. I can make this change, right? You, You have resources. 
And, and Jesus says, listen, if you're not helpless, if you're not weak, you're not coming in. And money makes it really hard to feel weak. Now, in these guys' day and in our day, we often see more money as more blessing, right? You talk to someone and go, how's it going? They go, oh, I just got this promotion, more money. God's blessing me so richly. Now, listen, I'm not saying that more money and more material stuff is necessarily not God's blessing. It very well is part of that. The Old Testament at least seems to indicate that it's part of it. But Jesus gives a warning here, and he says, listen, more money might also mean more temptation, more temptation to be independent, more temptation to be self-sufficient, more temptation to think, I don't really need God. So what must be surrendered to enter the kingdom? Whatever it is that's at your heart, that's essential, that's core, that you can't let go of, that's just absolutely so crucial, that, what's, what's, that is what must be surrendered. And, and it says at the end of this passage, it's worth it. Jesus goes on to say, listen, guys, if you give that up and you follow me, it's worth it. It'll be worth it in this life. It'll be worth it in the next life. There'll be persecution mixed in, but it's worth it. Why? Because you'll know me. And if you know me, you have everything you need. What kind of person enters the kingdom? Helpless people. What must be surrendered to enter the kingdom? Whatever it is that has more of your heart's affection than Jesus. Which raises our last question. So I hope by now you're feeling, maybe even asking yourself, how could I possibly enter the kingdom? If you're not asking that question, you're not hearing Jesus. The disciples heard it. Right, look at verse 26. They were exceedingly astonished. It said in verse 24, they were amazed. Now they're exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? If only helpless people enter, if only people who have given away all the things that are so core to them, if only those people can be saved, who can be saved? What hope is there? How could I possibly enter God's kingdom if that's what it takes? And what does Jesus say? He doesn't say, you know what, good point. Good point. I'm going to lower the bar. That's not what he says. What does he say? He says this, verse 27. Jesus, again, notice he looked at them. He looked at them. Jesus looked at them and said, with man... It is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. They go, who could possibly do this? And Jesus says, nobody. No one can. Right? If, if your point so far from this sermon is, well, i got to get serious. i gotta, I got to give up a lot of stuff, and I better sell off a lot of things, and I better get really serious about following Jesus because that's the only way. You've missed the point. Who can be saved? No one. Unless God intervenes. Unless God interrupts. Unless God does something. With man, it's impossible, but not with God. So how could I possibly be saved? Well, here's what the rest of the story tells us. is that there was another rich, young ruler 
This was a ruler who not only had great possessions, but this is a ruler who the Psalms said, the cattle on a thousand hills belong to him. This is a ruler who spoke and sustains everything by the word of his power. And this rich young ruler didn't just give away his possessions. He gave away his life. And he became helpless. And he became weak. Naked on a cross, crucified, completely vulnerable and forsaken. That rich young ruler did that so that you could enter the kingdom. The Apostle Paul talks about Jesus this way. In 2 Corinthians 8, he says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, right, Jesus had everything, the Father's right hand, yet for your sake he became poor. Jesus took on flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus took the form of a servant that led him to the cross. For your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Material rich? No. But rich enough to say, my life doesn't consist in the abundance of my possessions. I have Jesus and he's enough. With man it's impossible. If you want to get serious enough and get moral enough and get determined enough, it won't work. But if you will look to the one who did it perfectly for you, then you'll have everything you need. Jesus hints at this. This is where we'll pick up next week. Verse 33. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him. And kill him. And after three days, he will rise. How could you enter the kingdom? Because the true rich young ruler gave it all up for you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel, the good news that offers us salvation and life and relationship with you. Through Jesus. God, I pray especially now for those who have felt like they could never do enough to know you. And God, I pray that you would help them see that they're right. Help them see that Jesus is the one who gave up everything so that they could be brought in, even when their hearts were filled with idolatry. God, help all of us to see that and to remember that, to be filled with gratitude and joy and praise. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Luke.